coming days. Matthew 16, starting to read at verse 13, says, When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah. That's Elijah and Jeremiah, the prophets from the Old Testament, or one of the prophets. And he says unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen. And uh, with the Lord's touch on us this morning, we want to teach from this focus today. Who is Jesus Christ and why does it matter? Amen. The Lord never once tried to conform himself into an image or into a profile that made him suitable to the concepts of his society, that made him palatable to their preferences. And neither will he do so for you and I today. God does not change. The change needs to come from us. It is our understanding, it is our way of living, it is our way of thinking that must conform to God, not the other way around. And, and we need to recognize that we are living in a generation where we are demanded, is probably not even a strong enough word, to conform to the preferences, the tastes, and the sensitivities of every which way that people may choose to live, may choose to identify, may choose to be offended or outraged. Such is the world in which we live that we, it almost seems like everybody is tiptoeing around everybody else because we don't want to hurt people's feelings. Now, I have no desire to hurt anybody's feelings, and I don't think we should have that intention. But we need to recognize that preference is just that. It's only preference. It's not truth. And you cannot change truth. And the Lord never said, well, I will change who I am, or I will change my word so that it fits into the parameters that you would prefer. Uh, that's not the way that God operates. And we, we cannot have a concept of God that is just comfortable for us and expect Him to be okay with that. We can't say, well, this is the version. I, I've heard many times people say to me, well, I believe God this and I believe God that, and I believe God sees my heart, and I believe God knows that my intentions are right. And they make those statements sincerely. But just because you believe something doesn't make it true. You can believe in the Loch Ness Monster if you want to, but I'm pretty sure Nessie's not there. You may have a different opinion. That's okay. We can still be friends. You're a little crazy, but that's all right. It's very important that we have faith. Faith is crucial. But faith and belief that is placed in something that is false is tragically pointless and without value. Sincerity is a good quality to have, but sincerity that is misdirected is, is tragic because you can be sincere and you can be sincerely wrong. And there should be within us a sincere desire to know God that should be never ending in this life. If you feel like you have arrived at the fullness of understanding of God, I would suggest you need to look again. Because you are limited and He is not. And just recently I was in a conversation with somebody whose intellect far surpasses mine and they made the comment 
that they're coming to understand that they will never plumb the depths of the Word of God. And that, that's a wise statement to make. It is. It is a wise statement to make. But even, even in the acknowledging that we can never grasp all there is of God, He wants us to know who He is. It is not His intention that He remains some mystical far away, blurry idea that we can only ever sort of distantly relate to. That is not his intention. It is definitely true. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 13 and 12, and he said, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as I also am known. And that's a powerful statement. He was acknowledging that I am so limited in this life and what I grasp and understand in the present is only, it's incomplete. But when I get there, John said that we shall see him and we shall be like him. Amen. Amen. But it is so important that if we are going to be people of faith, that there is a genuine desire that in this journey that we would know who it is that we worship. That we would know who it is because you are putting your confidence and you are putting your eternal destiny in the hands of the one you choose to believe in. And so it matters. Amen. And so this is going to be a, a reasonably long lesson perhaps. I might be faster if I get too excited. We'll see. But there are some different views. There are many, many different views actually in the world of, about who Jesus is. And to just reflect on a couple of them, the, the Muslims believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. They believe that he did perform miracles by the permission of God. They believe that he was a great messenger, one of a small group of great messengers. They believe that he was not actually crucified, but that a substitute who was given his likeness died in his place. They do not believe that he is divine. You move across to the Hindu faith. The Hindus believe, and these are generalizations, so you know, within any faith there are a lot of different ideas. So you, know, you may, well, I read this and I read that. That's okay. These are just generalizations. But the Hindus believe that he was a great teacher for social change, a supreme human model. Now, whether he was divine or not doesn't really concern the Hindus because they believe in reincarnation. You're always coming back as a better version anyway, so that's what they believe. The fact that the Scripture says that he is the only incarnation of divinity is problematic for people of the Hindu faith. Gandhi apparently held his teaching in high regard. The Buddhists have a similar perspective in that they consider him to be a wise teacher. Now, you can spend way too long on the internet looking at various other faiths and groups that, and their opinions of who Jesus was, but you will find that many of them are various forms of these ones that we've just mentioned already. And even under the very broad and loosely fitting umbrella of Christianity, there are a lot of different views about who Jesus Christ is. Some believe that he was a secondary God uh, of slightly less value and importance, something like a Jehovah Junior. Others have suggested, and this to me is blasphemous, but others have suggested that Jesus and Lucifer were actually brothers, that they were both sons of God. That's the ultimate dysfunctional family. There are some others that claim that he is one part of a two-person Godhead. And if you want a technical term for that, it's binitarianism, that when, they use, when theologians use the word person, 
there's a lot of varying ideas about what they mean by that, but they're usually talking about centers of consciousness, a person, a persona. And there are others that claim he's part of a three-person Godhead or somehow he's three, but yet still one. And we know that as Trinitarianism. Now, the question is, can they all be right? Are they all wrong? How do we know? How do we know? John 5 and 39 says, Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. We must come back to the Word of God. We must come back. Not everybody can be right. If there is such a thing as truth, then there has got to be such a thing as false. And if one person says this and another person says that, they both, and they're opposite, they both can't be right. That just doesn't make any sense. But the platform that we all begin from, or that we should at least begin from, is firstly that we believe in God. I hope today you believe in God. I hope today that you believe that there is a God, that we did not evolve from sea sludge and then a couple of squillion years later drop down out of a tree and walk on our hind legs, but that we believe that God made everything. Amen. We believe in God. We believe that the Bible is true and that it is infallible. This is very, very important. It's very important because if we believe that the Scripture is open to question regarding its veracity or its truthfulness, then everything becomes an opinion. If the Word of God is not true, then there is no way to have an established truth whereby we can measure things against. And that is the philosophy of this age. The the world believes that there is no absolute truth anymore, but that you are able to have your own truth and that other people should respect your truth if it's different from their truth. And I'm not trying to be humorous, but that's, that in a nutshell is the society in which we live. Nothing is right or wrong anymore. As long as my truth doesn't hurt somebody else, then it's okay for me to have my own truth. It all comes back to my preferences and me not having my feelings hurt. And that's the world in which we live. And effectively, it is humanity making themselves their own God. Amen. But we must believe that the Word of God is true and infallible. And we believe that Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again. The part, at least within broader Christianity, that causes the most division or the most confusion is understanding the connection between the one that we call the God of the Old Testament, who created the universe and everything that is within it, and the child who was born of a virgin in a manger in Bethlehem about 2,000 years ago who grew to be the man named Jesus Christ. That is so often where people struggle. I want to, this is going to be scripture heavy because what did the Lord say? He said, search the scriptures for they testify over me. Let's look at some scriptures where it's recorded what Jesus said about who he was. We've already read this, but Matthew 16, 16 to 17, we'll be doing a bit of repetition. Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, you are the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, or Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. This is very important that we understand that when Peter made that statement, Jesus didn't sit back and say, now that's an interesting idea. 
Let's, let's examine that a bit further. He endorsed Peter's statement as a truth that was revealed to him by God himself. He didn't say, he said, you did not come up with that on your own. You didn't just work that out in your own strength and flesh and blood. But he said, the Father which is in heaven has revealed that unto you. That's a powerful statement of endorsement. We need to not just skip over that. Across in Mark chapter 14, Jesus is on trial in the kangaroo court that he would be convicted in. In Mark 14 and 61, when they were accusing him, it says, but he held his peace and answered nothing. And again, the high priest asked him, you know, when, when you, there are so many tangents in this lesson. When, when you understand the role of the high priest in the Old Testament, you understand that Jesus Christ was our high priest. The, the irony of a high priest challenging the identity of Jesus Christ is, is quite incredible. Again, the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ? Are you the Messiah, the Son of the blessed? And the King James blessed has capitalized. It's talking about the Lord. And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. When he finally responded to their questions, he acknowledged that he was the Christ. He was the Savior. He was the Messiah. In John 5 and 43, and we could teach a lesson on every one of these verses, the Lord said, I am come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. When Jesus said he came in his Father's name, he wasn't only speaking of where his name originated or the one that had given him his name, but he was also speaking of having the power and authority of that name. When he came in the Father's name, he was saying, that's where my name came from, and I have the power to operate in that name. Amen. In John 8 and 12, then spake Jesus Again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Jesus is the light of the world. John chapter 8 and verse 56. Your father Abraham, this is, if you take the time to read this chapter, there is the, the Pharisees, the religious rulers, always challenging who Jesus was because he always challenged what they were doing. And he said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, you're not even 50 years old. How could you possibly have seen Abraham? Abraham's been dead for centuries. And Jesus said unto them, verily, verily, or truly, 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 I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Then took they up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Jesus claimed to have been around before Abraham. And in his statement in verse 58, he identified himself as the one that spoke to Moses from the burning bush in Exodus. Now, we need to understand the reason they took up stones was because under the law, if somebody claimed to be God, they were to be put to death. They understood. It's interesting, and this is, this is just a side note, but throughout the Gospels, as Jesus interacted with the religious, with the Pharisees, with the Sadducees, with the scribes, they understood clearly who he was claiming to be. 
because they wanted to kill him. They understood very clearly that he was claiming to be God. But since then, throughout history, religion has tried to find a way to separate him from God. The Pharisees had no problem understanding the claims that he made. They didn't say, well, look, he's claiming to be a great prophet. They understood that he was claiming to be the one that spoke from the burning bush to Moses. Because otherwise, it's bad grammar, because he should have said before Abraham was, I was. But when he deliberately used the words, I am, he was telling them, I'm the one that spoke to Moses. When Moses said, who shall I tell the people has sent me? The Lord said, tell them the I am has sent you. Tell them I am that I am. I am the self-existent one. He is the uncreated one. He is the one that has always existed. And Jesus stood there in flesh and blood and said, before Abraham was. He's in his early 30s at this stage. Abraham's been dead for a long time. But he said, that was my voice speaking out of the burning bush. John 11 and 25, Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. He said, I, have this, I am the source of the power of resurrection and life. John 14, and I know there's a lot of scripture. John 14 and verse 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, not a truth or a way, but the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Then he said, If you had known me, you should have known my Father also. And from henceforth you know him and have seen him. We, you know, we read this in hindsight and we think, man, these disciples were a bit slow. They, they, they've really taken a while to get up to speed. But you have to understand the revelation of who this man was. This is, these are Jewish men. These are Israelites that have, their identity is tied to Abraham. Their identity is tied to Moses. Their identity is tied to Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Rapha, all, the, the revealed God of the Old Testament. So here is, here is this man that grew up as their peer, claiming to be the same God. In verse 8, Philip, who's still scratching his head, says, Lord, show us the Father. And it suffices us. So that'll, that will be happy of that if you'll just show us the Father. And Jesus said unto him, Have I been so long time with you? And yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. But how sayest then, Show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. There are some powerful statements in this passage. Firstly, Jesus stated that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and that nobody could come to the Father except by him. Then he made some very incredible statements. The first one was he said that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He didn't say you've seen a representative of the Father. He didn't say you've seen his ambassador. He didn't say he wasn't the substitute teacher for the day. He said, but if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It doesn't matter how you slice that. That is a powerful statement of the identity of Jesus Christ. And then he went a step further and he said that the Father actually dwells or lives within me. Amen. 
So that's just some of the things that Jesus said about who he was. So what did the writers of the New Testament after the gospel say about who Jesus was? In Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, the Apostle Paul is making his final remarks, if you like, to the elders, to the leaders of the church at Ephesus. It's the last time he's going to see them. And this is what he says. He says, take heed therefore unto yourselves. That's some good advice. Keep yourself right with God. And to all the flock, to the church, over which the Holy Ghost, over which the Spirit of God has made you the overseers, the leaders, the shepherds, the pastors. He said, take care of yourself first. And that's a very good principle. If you're involved in any ministry or leadership of any kind, you've got to be healthy. Take care of yourself first. Then watch over the flock. Feed them. Feed the church of who? Feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. Who purchased it? God purchased it. Whose blood was it? It was God's blood. When did God ever have blood? In the, in the man, Jesus Christ. And the scripture has no problem making a statement that says that the blood of Jesus was the blood of God. He was God manifest in the flesh. Amen. Philippians chapter 2. If some of these scriptures are new to you, I would encourage you to commit some of them to memory. Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 9. says, Wherefore God also has highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth. In other words, everything everywhere. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Again, just a few verses, but powerful statements. Firstly, his name is above every other name. Now, we get to understand if he's not God, then that means that his name is above God's name. That's a problem. It also says that every knee from everywhere is going to bow to him and confess that he is Lord. It's not in my slides, but if you look in Isaiah chapter, I want to say chapter 43, I think it is, the God of the Old Testament says that every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord. And that when people bow before him at the name of Jesus and confess that he is Lord, they, when they do that, it will be to the glory of God the Father. Now, you've got to understand what that means. How? When we bow to the name of Jesus, how does that glorify God? Because Jesus is the revelation of God. Jesus is the manifestation of God to provide salvation. So when we worship Him, when we bow down to Him and we say that there is no name that is higher than your name, we are glorifying God in all of His fullness. We are not saying we worship the Son, we're glad your Father sent you. We're actually acknowledging what God did when He came in flesh And when we magnify the name of Jesus, we are magnifying the revealed saving name of God himself. And it is important we understand it. That's why when I say his name is exalted, we're glorifying God the Father at the same time. In fact, the scripture makes it clear in other places that you can't have the Father and and without the Son. You can't have the Son without the Father. You've got to have both. Amen. Colossians chapter 1. Verse 15, speaking of Jesus, 
It says, Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? For by him, by whom? This image of the invisible God. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things. That's just not chronologically. That's in preeminence and importance and majesty. And by him, all things consist. Everything is held together by him. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence that he would be before everything. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Again, so much in this passage. I, the, there's something about understanding who Jesus is that needs to stir our hearts. Amen. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the seeable of the unseeable. What did he say in John 14? He said, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is the image of the invisible. Amen. For by him were all things created. How? Could he have created everything if he's only in his early 30s? The Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. The Spirit of God that was manifest in the humanity of Jesus Christ is the one that moved on the face of the waters in Genesis chapter 1. It is the same God. Amen. And it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell in him. That's not saying that they were co-working together like co-pastoring, you know, co-leading but he was acknowledging that this was the expression of himself the lord made it clear that he would not share his glory with another colossians 2 and 9 if you've never memorized this verse you can do it in about two minutes for in him speaking of jesus dwelleth or lives resides all the fullness of the godhead bodily all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Going back to Colossians 1.19 in a more modern translation, it says, For God in all His fullness was pleased to live in Christ. Amen. Amen. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5 says, For there is one God. How many? One. The Jews believed it. It was a part of their identity. It has been the consistent message from Genesis through Revelation. And the endeavors of the world and even religion at large to separate him does not come from God. There is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The reason we have the humanity is that he could bridge a gap. Some of you know that in the book of Job, when Job was overwhelmed with his trials and his troubles and, and wanting to find an answer and wanting to be able to plead his case to God, Job, I don't remember what chapter it is, but Job says, even if I could come before him, he said, I'm not worthy to be in his presence. He said, he said if, I, if I can make myself as clean as I'm able to, I'm still filthy in his sight. And then he uses this old English and he says, oh, that there was a daysman, D-A-Y-S-M-A-N, Oh, that there was a daysman betwixt or between us. A daysman is a mediator. Job was saying, I wish there was somebody that was able to stand between me and God and that he could represent him to me and I could be represented by him back to God. He said, but I don't have that person. 
Why didn't he have that person? Because Job lived a long time ago. But when Jesus was born, there is one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. Now there is somebody who is perfectly positioned, as you like, between the throne of heaven and the humanity on earth that is able to bring them together. He doesn't back out of the situation saying, my job's done. He brings us together in himself. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Amen. We'll get to this verse in a little bit. That God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. 1 Timothy 3.16 Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Not the mystery of God, as some people would say. In this context, most commentators say it is the fact that we have a gospel message that is amazing. That there is a message of hope and salvation. Then it says, God was manifest in the flesh. God was revealed in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world and received up into glory. It's talking about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God manifest, declared, revealed, displayed in the flesh. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power this is talking about jesus if he's upholding everything by his power and he's separate from god what's god doing what's he holding up it's the same god when he had by himself purged our sins sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high now i want to address that term wasn't in my lesson, but when you read in the scripture about the right hand of God, it is talking about the place of power and authority. Jesus did not say, I've had a big day, I need to sit down and sat down on the right hand side of God's throne. He was in the place of God's power and authority because God does not have a right hand side. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere at once. It is language to describe the power and authority of God. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8. I am Alpha and Omega. If you don't know, that's the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. So in English, we would be saying, he would be saying, I'm from A to Z. I'm from A to Z. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending. Saith the Lord, which is present, which was past, and which is to come, the Almighty. You move down in the same chapter to verse 11, again saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book, send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, and it lists those seven churches. And you go a few more verses further in verse 17. It says, when I saw him, this is John speaking, I fell at his feet as dead. He laid his right hand, again, the right hand is mentioned on purpose. He laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. So this person that is repeatedly claiming to be the Alpha and the Omega, to be the beginning and the end, to be the first and the last, is the one that was alive, that died, and rose again. Only Jesus fits that qualification. 
Only Jesus can, if we want to talk about the God of the Old Testament, he never died. Only the humanity of Jesus Christ gave up the ghost on the cross. And when John saw him in Revelation 1, he said he was like unto the Son of Man. Why didn't he say that he was the Son of Man? Because the John, the Jesus, sorry, that John saw in Revelation 1 was very different to the Jesus that he was used to walking along the Sea of Galilee with. Scripture says that when he would come, there'd be, no, there'd be nothing about him that we would be attracted to. Jesus wasn't, you know, didn't look anything out of the ordinary in his humanity. He was an ordinary, everyday Jewish man to look upon. That's why the Scripture says that he came unto his own and they didn't receive him. They didn't, they didn't, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? That was who John walked with. That was who John had the last supper with. That was who John saw get crucified and who was Jesus made responsible for caring for his mother. But when he saw him in Revelation chapter 1, he saw a glorified Savior. He didn't see somebody that was nothing special about, but his eyes and his, his hair and his appearance, such was his majesty that John said, I fell down as if I was dead. That's why he said he was like the Son of Man. He said, I'd seen him before, but something was very, very different. But he was still the Alpha and the Omega, still the first and the last. Amen. I hope this is helping somebody this morning. Let's go back to the Old Testament for a couple of minutes. See what the Old Testament says about God that the New Testament also says about Jesus. Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 24. Thus saith the Lord, whenever, if you've got a King James Bible, whenever you see that word with four capital letters, L-O-R-D, all caps, it's talking without doubt about God himself. There are times when there's lowercase involved when it might be talking about a leader or a ruler or an authority. But whenever you see all caps, it's talking about God. Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, he that formed thee from the womb. I am the Lord that makes all things, that stretches forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself. Isaiah 45 and 12, the next chapter may be on the same or the next page. I have made the earth and created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens, and all their host have I commanded. A couple of chapters later in 47 and 4. As for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. These verses are just a small sample of scriptures in the Old Testament that tell us that God is the Creator. He emphasizes that he was by himself. There's repetition in, in Isaiah 44 and 24. Twice he says, I did it alone, I did it by myself. He is our creator and they also tell us that he is our redeemer. That he is the one that saves us, that pays the price for our sins. So with that in mind, when we jump across to the New Testament, in John chapter 1 and verse 10, clearly speaking of Jesus, it says he was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not colossians chapter 1 we've already read this but we're going to read it again colossians 1 verses 15 through 19 who is the image of the invisible god firstborn of every creature for by him were all things created that are in heaven that are in earth visible invisible basically everything it's ticking all the boxes he made everything he's before all things and by him everything is held together Amen. John chapter 4 and verse 42. This is Jesus, the, the, the te 
context is Jesus has been talking to the woman at the well. She goes back into Samaria, tells the men about how she's met the Messiah. They come out and they find out that, yes, he is the Messiah. And in John 4 and 42, they say unto the woman, now we believe. Not because of thy saying, which is a bit rude. We didn't believe it because of you, you know, we didn't trust you. But we have heard him ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Philippians 3 and 20 says, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. These scriptures, amongst many others, give credit to creation and redemption to Jesus Christ. The Old Testament scriptures give credit for creation and redemption to the God that spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. Now, either we have two creators and two redeemers, or we're talking about the one and same God. Jesus is the revelation of God in flesh. Amen. A couple more concepts just to underline that. The 23rd Psalm. My friend over here always smiles when we read the 23rd Psalm. And verse 1 says, The Psalm of David, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. John chapter 10 and verse 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Isaiah chapter 41 and verse 4. Who has wrought and done it? Or who's done this work calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, all capital, the first and with the last, I am He. And we already read from Revelation chapter 1 verses 17 and 18. I am the first and the last. I am He that lives, was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. How is, the, how is it possible that Old Testament describes one and New Testament gives the same attributes? How can the God of the Old Testament, who is eternal, invisible, and an omnipresent spirit, that word simply means he's everywhere at once, how can he be the same as this man who was born in Bethlehem? How can he be God and be the Son of God as well? We've read this verse already, but 1 Timothy 3 and 16, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. God revealed himself in the flesh amen and these not these verses are not in my slides but there are so many prophecies isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 for unto us a child is born unto us a son is given the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called wonderful counsel the mighty god the everlasting father somehow this child is going to be the everlasting father it has to be the revelation of god it is not a part of god it is not a delegated secondary God that they considered expendable. But such was the love of God that he took upon flesh himself. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 says, When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Hallelujah. Manifest. God was manifest in the flesh. Manifest simply means to appear plainly, to reveal, to display, to make visible that's why colossians calls him the image of the invisible god amen whenever you read in the scriptures and we could we could go all day on this but whenever you read in the scriptures about the son or the son of god it is always speaking about that man the image of god was god somehow shrink wrapped squeezed down condensed into the body of christ no, because God is still everywhere at once. But God used 
that revelation to reveal himself to humanity. He reached for humanity through Jesus Christ. He redeemed us through Jesus Christ. By sending a delegate? No, but by being in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 and 19, to wit or to know, to understand that God was in Christ. You see, the people that believe that there are multiple persons suggest that it was the Son of God that came in flesh. But the Bible says that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, bringing the world back into relationship with their Creator, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. The fullness of God, all of God's nature and attributes dwell, reside, live in Jesus Christ. Was he a man? Absolutely he was. He got hungry. He got tired. He felt lonely. He experienced our weaknesses. Was he also God? Absolutely. He spoke to the storm and it obeyed his voice. He cast out demons. They recognized him before he opened his mouth. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He raised himself from the dead. He said, you destroy this temple and I will raise it up. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. So who is Jesus Christ? He is the one true living God, revealed or declared as a man. He's not simply a part of God. He's not a delegated sacrifice, but by coming in flesh, he bridged the gap that the gulf of sin had put between us and our Creator. It's a little bit of a cliche, but somebody said accurately, we could not go to Him, so He came to us. Amen. So that's who Jesus Christ is in a brief little bit of a Bible study. Why does it matter? Is it just, well, that's what our church believes, so that's the particular, that's our truth? Why does it matter? Galatians chapter 1. In verse 6, Paul said, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that has called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. He says, not even a gospel. But there be some that trouble you that would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. That's a powerful, powerful passage of Scripture. You don't mess with the message. You don't mess with the message. The message is that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 and 4. But I fear, lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached. Or if you receive another spirit which you have not received, or another gospel which you have not accepted, you might well bear with them. Paul was worried and he was warning. He wasn't saying, well, that's okay. You just have your own version. He was saying, I am concerned that somebody will come. And he warned the early church about people that would preach another gospel or another Jesus. It is important. Why why is who Jesus Christ is matter? It's important because the gospel depends upon the identity of Jesus being accurate. The message of salvation, of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ depends upon who he said he was. 
He said, unless you believe that I am here, you shall die in your sins. Amen. If we preach about a Jesus that is not scriptural, we do not have a connection with the Word of God. Romans chapter 1. And I'm nearly done. Romans 1, starting at verse 21. This is a, a tragically accurate definition of the world in which we live. Because that when they knew not God, they glorified Him not as God. Neither were thankful. I'm telling you, it's powerful to be grateful. But became vain in their imaginations. And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Romans chapter 1. It's the second part of it particularly is, is, a, is a horrible passage of Scripture in its graphic description of man's rejection of God, but then also of the consequences of that rejection. It speaks to us of how they took their eyes off God. They changed His glory. They changed His truth. And as a result of that, idolatry and immorality entered in. Every society... The further they get from God, the more they become immoral. If you don't believe that, look around. Look around at the world in which we live. Amen. So when they left truth, idolatry and immorality entered in. So why is it important that we believe in one God revealed in the man Jesus Christ, not as a half a God or a third of God or a junior God or some wise teacher in history? When you have a belief about who God is, about who Jesus is that is not supported by Scripture. You have a concept that is man-made, not God-declared. And if it's man-made, it's an idol. If it's man-made, it's an idol. A deity or a God, little g, that finds its identity in the mind of a man rather than in the Word of God is an idol. Now, please do not misunderstand me. I am not suggesting that people who attend churches that teach these things are actively idol worshippers. Many very sincere people that worship in many different churches have a concept of God that is actually closer to Scripture than the doctrinal statements of the church they attend. But any doctrine teaching about who God is that is not biblical misrepresents God's character and His identity and he does not recognize it as himself. There are many things through history that have been supposedly done in the name of God that God has had nothing to do with. It's a lot of things, and people say, well, Christianity, this happened. They talk about the Crusades and this and that, and all of those things happened, and they were all wrong, but they were not, they were not endorsed by God. They were men doing what men wanted to do and taking God's name to try and give what they were doing some authority. And if you study church history, and you can be relieved, we're not going to get into a lesson on that right now. But throughout church history, in what became, I guess, the organized, orthodox, and often state church, there were councils. 
through history. They called them church councils. There was one in a place called Nicaea. There was one in, a place in Ephesus. There's one in another place called Chalcedon. And so often, so often the focal point of discussion in these church councils was about trying to understand who God and Jesus were. And they came up with this theory and they came up with that theory and they came up with all these different theories. They should have just looked at the Scripture. When the Pharisees said, we're going to stone him, because when he said, before Abraham was, I am, they knew without a doubt the claim that he was making. Nowhere do we find this separation in the Word of God. But God is still one. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is still one. Still one God. And Jesus is the revelation of that God in flesh. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1 as I close. It says, After this I looked. Behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Some suggest this is a statement about the rapture of the church. Verse 2 says, And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Stand with me if you would this morning. It matters who Jesus is. It matters who Jesus is. We do not have to be highly educated and qualified theologians, but we must know who we worship. We must know who we worship. Thank you, Jesus. When we stand before him, he will be glorified. We will see him. The, the language of the book of Revelation describes the lamb as if it had been slain. It's, it's symbolic. There wasn't a fluffy animal sitting on the throne, but it was the, the glorified Jesus Christ that was still representing what he had done for us in redemption and his sacrifice and the price that he paid. Amen. There is still... If, why was that the first commandment if it doesn't matter? Why did the entire identity of Israel surround the fact that there is only one God? Of all the things God could have chosen, he said this. And when they got to the New Testament and they came to Jesus and said, which is the first commandment? And he's, he didn't even miss a beat. He said, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Think about who was saying those words. Who was, he was quoting his own word from the Old Testament. And he was saying, that's who's here. Amen. If I've challenged your theology this morning and you don't agree with me, please don't get offended and just walk out. Let's have an opportunity to open the Scriptures together. Because what God's Word says is more important than your opinion or my opinion. It's what He says. That's why the Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. Father, we love you.